From the Canon Institute, this is The Russia File. I am Maxim Trudalyubov. Yuri Gagarin, a Soviet pilot and cosmonaut, made his pioneering spaceflight 60 years ago. The USSR's space program showcased an optimistic, forward-looking society that saw itself as a powerful rival to the American capitalist system. As opposed to Stalin's USSR, this was also a better, more humane version of the Soviet modernization project. Joining me to discuss the Soviet-American space race and today's newfound space enthusiasm are Victoria Smolkin, Associate Professor of History and Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at Wesleyan University, and Asif Siddiqui, Professor of History at Fordham University, Specialist in History of Science and Technology. Welcome, Victoria and Asif. Victoria, can you talk briefly about this sort of pre-real space race cultural situation in the Bolshevik Soviet Union or the origins, the roots of that fascination with space? Yeah, well, it's interesting because there's kind of two directions or two genealogies that you can look at. One is this philosophical genealogy in the Russian case, cosmism. And the idea of cosmism, and this is what I've always found so interesting about the space race was that kind of moving humanity to space or colonizing space or expanding into space was inherently tied to a problem that was actually seen as more fundamental to the human project, which was overcoming death. So the reason you needed to go to space and to kind of expand was because the idea was that the common task of humanity was to resurrect all ancestors, to overcome death. And once you resurrected all ancestors and overcame death, then, you know, inevitably you would run out of room and you need to colonize other planets and you would enter kind of a new era, you know, of human history. So this kind of mystical, philosophical part kind of drops off after the late 30s or become subdued. I think Asif can speak to this. I'd be curious to see what he thinks happens to it. But that's kind of one part of it. And then the other part of it is, you know, the kind of the story of modernization, right? And of kind of infinite progress of overcoming nature through technology. All of these societies, right, kind of enthusiast societies for astronomy, rocketry, right, before any of these things were actually real, they were dreams. But for some people, they were dreams that were kind of imminently real, right, the things that were going to come about in the very near future. For others, it was a kind of longer term project. But I think there is a kind of a moment in which it becomes real, as you kind of said, and becomes tethered to much more, let's say, terrestrial or earthly political projects, you know, and is no longer about this kind of philosophical overcoming death and expanding into the cosmos, although that rhetoric doesn't go away. But I do wonder, Asif, if in terms of it becoming real, my impression, it was Sputnik that kind of made its significance more than a kind of scientific curiosity or a scientific kind of achievement into something much more kind of with military security implications. But that wasn't kind of anticipated, that that in a way that the it was the American reaction to Sputnik that in a way kind of made it as big of a moment as it ultimately became. Is that, would you say that's... Yeah, yeah, that was exactly my question, actually, when it became a race, when it became consciously seen as a race between the two space leaders. Asif? Well, I think there's different levels of consciousness about the so-called race. So I think in the public imagination, for sure, Sputnik is the milestone that catapults this discussion into this really deep, global conversation, and certainly in the U.S., the reaction in the U.S. was 
a mixture of shock and fear and excitement. And I think all of that is very much working in the media in terms of its reactions to Sputnik, but also in terms of the halls of government, in terms of Congress, who are thinking that, oh, the Russians are ahead and so on and so forth. And so what what can we do? We've been humiliated. This thread of discussion in which the so-called humiliation of the United States is central is a part of the post-Sputnik discussion. But at the same time, I do think that there is a little bit of a grace that's going on even prior to Sputnik. And you see this, of course, mainly on the Soviet side. If you look at the documents of people like Sergei Pavlovich Karelyov and others who were within the Soviet program that they were very aware and keenly aware of what the Americans were doing. So they were, in essence, setting their own milestones in response so that they could get to space first. And the launch of Sputnik itself was very much, for them at least, you know, we must do this first. And so the race had already begun in their minds. So I think that part is worth mentioning. But I think in terms of the public acknowledgement of it and the public investment in it, it's really a post-Sputnik phenomenon. What did the race mean for the two protagonists, for the two countries? Essentially, what was the prize, what they were seeking? As if This is part of a larger discussion about the Cold War in general and the kind of way in which two superpowers were in essence kind of vying for, uh, you know, people, I guess, think about the way in which the audience was really the so-called third world. You know, that's one way to think about this race, that what is the as these newly emerging nations, particularly in Africa, but elsewhere too, were sort of becoming independent, which way would they choose? The socialist way or the capitalist way? And this was, I think, one way to think about why have this race at all, to sort of win the hearts and the minds of people all over the world. But there's other reasons, other ways to see the race. One is, of course, it stands in as a military race too. Without actually going to war, you can sort of gauge each other's capabilities. So there's that. And, and the third way, I think, is a simple measure of economic, political, dominance on the global stage. The Soviet Union, if it has indeed arrived as a global superpower with the launch of Sputnik, what does this mean for American dominance? So I think in those, all of these ways, it becomes a kind of race and probably many others, but I think it's hard to disentangle all these threads into sort of discrete ones. Okay, okay. But was it a case of a transfer of military technology to civil applications and that's it? So was it initially really military and then used for civil things like space flight? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, all of this stuff was highly militarized, which is one of the interesting things about space, I think, in general, because the utopian ideal or the cosmist ideal is fundamentally metaphysical or some other thing, but it required a marriage with deeply practical military hardware and all this other stuff. So I think that's why the space program draws in so many different strands of kind of society. It's the utopians, the cranks, the scientists, the military people. It's very unusual in that way. But yeah, I think militarily, after the launch of Sputnik, you have the missile gap and all this other stuff, particularly the US. And Kennedy, to some degree, is elected in 1960 based on his critique of Eisenhower, who he claims had essentially, you know, was the, let the United States be asleep at the wheel. And so the Soviet Union had gained a military superiority. And this was, of course, fed by Khrushchev, who's quite enigmatic and funny and blustery statements of we are producing missiles like sausages in factories. You know, all of this stuff scared everybody, right? Victoria, we are speaking when um, 60 years ago, 
almost exactly, was the day when uh, Yuri Gagarin made his first space flight. And that was a huge milestone for the Soviet Union and everyone else, of course. And uh, Yuri Gagarin's image apparently was promoted by the Soviet uh, power as a sort of an atheist icon, wasn't it? What do you think about this kind of functioning of Gagarin's cultural persona, as it were? Yeah, it's a great question. It's so entangled and kind of a number of other ideological projects. So I'll try to kind of parse it out. I think in terms of seeing Gagarin as an atheist icon, you know, one just small caveat to that, I think cosmonauts as figures, you know, or the cosmonaut as a kind of figure was seen in that way. Gagarin actually was always kind of shy, you know, stepping back from that. And he never really embraced that discourse and never really spoke about it. The cosmonaut who really embraced that role was Chitov, cosmonaut number two, who actually went to the Seattle World's Fair and said, you know, the Soviet power or Soviet project is an atheist project. And we went to space and we didn't see God. Like this kind of discourse was really not something that you heard much from Gagarin personally, but cosmonaut, right, becomes that symbol. And what is that symbol really about? It's not just about atheism as atheism. It was kind of embedded in a deeper discourse about modernization and about why the Soviet Union was able to take primacy in this scientific and technological project, which was cast as because we've embraced the future, because we are not held back by these kind of backward superstitious beliefs, because we are radical humanists who allow humankind to actually fully conquer nature, right? And we don't stand in fear and trembling before transcendent powers. So that was kind of written into a bigger narrative about the meaning of Soviet modernity and what really made it a kind of superior form of modernity. It also, I think, put Gagarin in a kind of peculiar role and put cosmonauts in a peculiar role. And this is something that I've been thinking about more recently because you asked what did the race mean for both sides? And, you know, why were these cosmonauts really kind of so prominent as symbols, right, as individuals? And on the Soviet side, the thing that I keep thinking about is that in a way they redeem the space, the cosmonauts and the kind of utopianism and rhetoric of space redeemed modernization as a project in the Soviet context in the aftermath of de-Stalinization. So if you kind of think about the costs of modernization for the Soviet Union in the 20s and 30s, the human cost, it was so colossal that after the renunciation of certain aspects of the Stalinist project, which was completely embedded in the Soviet project, right? There was no Soviet modernization that wasn't Stalinist. He was the one that carried it out. You know, I think people were left with this question, right? There was this kind of ideological contradiction. Was it worth it? Were all of these colossal deaths, collectivization, industrialization, displacement, what did we actually achieve? Well, okay, one thing we achieved was we won the war. But the other thing we achieved is we entered into a new phase of human history. I wasn't thinking about it that way. I mean, really, thank you. It's a very good point. I think that was really, really important at the time to sort of pick up the hopes, to raise the hopes again, as it were, right? I think to kind of revitalize the project, but revitalize it not just by going to authentic Leninism, which was part of it, and not just by saying the party knows the way. 
because you can't really convincingly argue that in the aftermath of de-Stalinization, right? You can say it, but it's not going to be that convincing unless you have something to show for it. And what you have to show for it was the scientific technological revolution and the ability, you know, because Gagarin was cast as precisely the product of the Soviet modernization project. Here was, you know, his grandparents are serfs, he's a peasant, and now he's a cosmonaut. So, I mean, what better trajectory can you find to actually legitimate this tremendously costly project, costly in the sense of human lives? Going back to the atheism, which was so important for the Soviet system, did it work as intended, the uh, using uh, Gagarin and other cosmonauts as uh, icons? Depends on what the intent was. If the intent was to convince people that cosmonauts going to space and not seeing God and coming back and talking about it meant that there was, in fact, no God, and therefore all of their kind of the foundations of their religious belief had been fundamentally destroyed. No, absolutely not. It did not succeed in that way. And I write about this in my book. After I found out about Gagarin, I knew I had wasted 50 years of my life. And now I knew the truth, which was that there is no God, right? So there was this kind of narrative that was reproduced in public. But when the sociologists went out and talked to ordinary people, a lot of what they heard was, you know, people really being able to reconcile being very enthusiastic about what happened and proud to be Soviet, but not seeing in any way a contradiction with their religiosity and even saying things like, why would God show himself to the cosmonauts, right? So kind of just even trying to kind of make these kind of logical contradictions seem absurd. And so from that perspective, it absolutely didn't succeed. It did succeed, I think, and this was an important piece of it as a way of buttressing the ideology, right? By kind of pushing religion out and making a clear and coherent binary for the ideological project of the building communism. I think it made it very clear what that project was about. We started by saying that the Soviet Union was a leading space power and fixed some very, very important milestones. But then later, the Soviet space program started to drag on. Things were not going that well. Why was the Soviet Union not succeeding as much later on the Soviet Union as it was in the beginning? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because we tend to focus on the triumphs and the spectaculars of the early days of the Soviet space program. But obviously, there is a kind of decline. It's noticeable by the 1970s. You know, there's a couple of easy answers. One is people always bring out is that the founding leader of the Soviet space program, Sergei Pavlovich Karolyov, he passed away in 1966. And uh, there's kind of a feeling, a lament, if you will, that, you know, if only he had lived, we'd have gone on to more success. There's probably some truth to that, but I do think that systemically the program and the whole project, entire project, had a lot of structural problems and funding problems. And I've talked about this in some of my writings that when the United States essentially moved the goalpost to landing on the moon as the kind of next thing to happen, the Soviet Union obviously couldn't compete for a variety of reasons, again, to do with funding and structural inefficiencies. And when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon in 1969, the Soviet Union reoriented their efforts to sort of Earth orbital space stations. And I think at that point, you see a kind of feeling disenchantment creeping in in the 1970s, this sort of same repetitive, rather boring missions to the space stations in the 70s and 80s. Of course, the media plays it up as you know, new heroes of the Soviet Union, new cosmonauts are going up there. But I think there's a kind of disenchantment 
that sets in. And by the way, this this sort of disgruntlement is not unique to the Soviet Union. It happens in the U.S. too after the moon landings. What we sort of there's a kind of decline in interest in space, but de- decline in interest in the Soviet Union I think had to do first with the inability of the Soviet Union to essentially match the United States. But second, you know, this you have to look at the broader economic context, obviously with Brezhnev and the beginnings of what people call stagnation and economic depression, I guess you could call it. Some sort of just general feeling that things are kind of static and not moving forward. That kind of Khrushchevian feeling of forward motion is kind of lost by this moment. So culturally, socially, and economically, you felt the kind of slowing down. And all of this, I think, was reflected in the space program itself, which became, you know, every time a mission would launch to Salyut 6, there'd be some front page pictures of the cosmonauts, but then they would disappear and nobody would know who they were. And so I think that's a kind of interesting phase of the kind of decline of the Soviet space program. In a kind of broad sense, what did the space race achieve technologically and broader, probably politically as well. You mean for the Soviet Union or just Both. generally? I mean, for example, educationally, as I understand, I see, yeah. the United States was right. a, a huge push for scientific education in the U.S. Right. Yeah. I think what did the space race, you know, what was its legacy? I think you're absolutely right. In the United States, of course, we see, as you mentioned, for education, there's a commitment with the, uh, what is it, the National Defense Education Act, which pours billions of dollars to stipends and scholarships for students in engineering. In the Soviet Union, I think the ultimate legacy of it is hard to pin down, and maybe Victoria might have some thoughts on it. But my sense is that you had a, there was a moment of possibility. It was a moment that for many Soviet citizens was really the first moment in which they felt that the years of trauma were over after World War II, after everything that had happened before. So that moment of possibility of hope for a generation, I think there was a generational rite of passage who lived through 1961, the triumph of Gagarin and everything else. And they, I think, had grown up. They grew up and were in charge by the 1980s. Again, I'm sort of speculating a little bit here, but I, I wonder if that experience in the thaw might have shaped, and I know others have written about it, but that experience in the thaw, but with the space program, might have shaped some of their thinking during the time of Glasnost and Perestroika. And finally, I'd like to say that I think with the space program did, I think, encourage that generation of young Soviet people to engage in scientific and technical careers. Again, this is a bit anecdotal because I don't know if anybody's really studied it, but my sense is that there was a kind of this promotion of science and technology with the scientific and technical revolution of the 60s and the proliferation of popular science journals and so forth, the creation of Akadem Gorodok and all these other really science-based sites speak to a kind of being captivated by science and technology, which I think was enabled largely by the successes of the space program. So I think to finish my answer, I I think there's a broad social and cultural shift that happens in the 60s. I guess I should add that in terms of the military, because it's important because the military is wrapped up in the space program in very deep ways. The Soviet Union does achieve strategic parity in the 1960s. In other words, by about 1969-1970, the Soviet Union is now at an absolute equal with the United States in terms of nuclear weapons. And I think that happens, we don't talk about it, but that happens largely because of these space designers. So I think that 
the success of Sputnik enabled them to accrue in millions of rubles, or billions of rubles in contracts and escalate this thing to an absurd level. So that's, yeah, so that's my sort of take on it. Oh, uh, yeah, thank you, Asif. That's a very good point. And um, actually, I mean, anecdotally, as someone growing up in the Soviet Union in the 80s, I remember actually the decline of interest. I mean, my parents were the product in many ways of the 60s and uh, the enthusiasm was there with them. Uh, my father loved um, science and we had all those magazines, the Soviet magazines with all kinds of, I don't know, drawings. You were supposed yeah. to follow the technical yeah. things, the rockets everywhere. It was there. Although for my generation, it, it was kind of already funny, ironic, not really interesting, not that captivating as for my parents. And um, this is how I remember it. And uh, to this day, I mean, to be honest, I don't feel any particular enthusiasm for space exploration purely, I'm sure, because of my generation. But uh, Victoria, what do you think was, I mean, sort of culturally, that uh, decline what it meant for the culture of the late Soviet Union, how it played out. Yeah, I mean, Asif made a number of really important points. I would just add a couple of things specific to culture and society. So the first I would say is, you know, this decline, as, as Asif pointed out, is kind of taking place on both sides of the Iron Curtain, right? So, you know, things could have gone differently in a number of ways. For example, the Soviet Union could have had an Apollo moment after the Americans landed on the moon. They could have, I mean, we've known them to mobilize against the odds and achieve things, even when they don't have the resources or the fundings, right? So it was clearly at that point, not the same kind of priority. And it lost, I think, a certain sense of mission. And it also declined socially and culturally in the U.S. People began to really question in a much more pronounced way whether the cost of it was justifiable given all of these very real social problems, especially poverty, racism, civil rights. So social attention and the kind of cultural conversation shifted into other things, into much more earthly terrestrial issues. And so this kind of futurism begins to see outdated, right? And no longer relevant to the things that concern people day to day. I think I have felt it, basically. I think it's really interesting because it's very difficult, right? Ineffable to kind of pin down why do people stop caring about something? I mean, it's easier to say why they care about something because they articulate it, but they don't articulate as much why they stop, right? You're kind of trying to explain an absence or something that took a different direction than what you might have expected. And this was really brought home to me in these, I don't know if you remember in 2017, there was a um, time time capsule that was uncovered in Novorossiysk that had been placed. So it was in a time capsule that was placed in a house of culture by the people of 1967 for the next generations to open on the 100th anniversary of the revolution in 2017. Mm -hmm. And the good people of Novorossiysk actually opened it in 2017 on the 100th anniversary of the revolution. In a way, this kind of captures that moment so well. There's this letter, right? And the letter is about, you know, we congratulate you because we know by now you live in communism and we know that there are cities on the moon and you've already gone to Mars and probably you're already in communication with extraterrestrial civilizations, right? I mean, this was what was supposed to happen from the 
point of view of 1967, right? If you follow the kind of first 50 years of revolution and take the space race as this kind of culmination, it wasn't supposed to be the high point and then everything goes into decline. It was supposed to keep going, right? (laughs) Which you kind of forget because it didn't. And so I think there was, you know, partly it's that the limitations, the kind of technological limits of it were reached. It wasn't, as Asif pointed out, wasn't as exciting, as heroic, to go to near-Earth orbit and to kind of do whatever, you know, engineering feats and scientific experiments had to take place there, right? It wasn't the same as going to the moon, even though in many ways it's much more consequential and significant, right, what happens in near-Earth orbit than going to the moon, which has really no value actually beyond the symbolic level. I think that from the Soviet side, the pace of the change and the progress, it was harder to continue to reproduce the heroic narrative in so many ways. And I think partly because the Americans took the lead, so they became the heroes, Neil Armstrong, and partly because there just wasn't the same level of public interest and support. And I think you can really see this if you think about when World War II, the Great Patriotic War, becomes the centerpiece of the Soviet political project. That's really in the mid-70s. This is when all the parades start. And so it's really with the kind of decline. So basically they started looking backwards rather than... Yeah, that became the heroic narrative because the space race could no longer maintain its own glory in the absence of actual milestones that continue to be reached and surpassed. So I don't think it's incidental that at that point, the attention shifts to our heroism in World War II. Just to conclude briefly, I know you guys are historians, but we live in a kind of a new space race, which is much more populated. So it's very different, no longer bipolar. So we have all kinds of actors there, not just China, Japan, India, Luxembourg of all places. Yeah, they have a program. I've just learned recently that they're interested in exploring the extraction of um, resources from the moon. And of course, Elon Musk, I mean, all new cultural figures. So So in what sense, in which ways the new space race is different? I mean, why it did begin in the first place? I mean, there's new enthusiasm, apparently. Asif, what do you think? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. You know, what about now? What about the private enterprise? I tend to be cynical about these things, but my sense is there is probably something different going on, partly because if you have some extremely rich people with lots and lots and lots of money throw at exploding rockets and not care about it, you're going to eventually get results. But I think in terms of the global aspect of it, I think a couple of different things are happening. One for sure, I think, is the the rise of private enterprise and exploration. It's hard to say what's going to happen because one of the things about saying anything about space is you're inevitably wrong. I mean, I remember going back to the 90s, really, like, oh, in the next 10 years, this will happen. And every five years, people keep predicting, but it never does happen. And so why do why should we feel differently this time that in the next 10 years, we'll be on the moon or Mars? So I'm a little bit wary of those kinds of predictions. However, one other thing that has changed, I think, is the way in which globally, many, 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 many countries are now involved in space activities at a very low level and at a level that's not about trying to do spectacular things. They're really invested in these small CubeSats, doing little communication 
communications experiments, maybe a camera that focuses on their own country. And I think that's a really fundamental shift that's going on. You can go to many African countries and there's a whole Twitter feed called, I think it's called Africa Space that, you know, I follow and it's like, it brings up so many weird little things that I'm always surprised by many different African countries who are invested in space exploration in these sort of very modest ways. I think that's going to eventually have a longer resonance. And in terms of Russia, if I may add, Russia has been very much victim to all of this, I think, in the sense that a victim to this, oh, in the next five years, the Russian program will finally get better. Because there's been a feeling, I think, in the last 20, 30, you know, it's been 30 years since the Soviet collapse. 30 years is the same time that it went from Gagarin to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So that time period has now passed after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And yet in that time, the Russian space program still seems kind of looking for direction looking for something firm. And I think it seems kind of always something is about to happen, but never does. And I think that doesn't bode well for the future. I think that something different has happened in Russian society and culture and economics to make the space program essentially kind of, its rhetoric is very large and there are conferences and anniversaries all the time in Moscow and St. Petersburg, because I follow them. But it is really aimed at a lot of it is just kind of past oriented rather than future oriented. I hope something better happens, but I guess I'm a little bit cautious in terms of what will happen with the Russian program. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of jokes, Asif, about Russia's space program. <laughs> like, like, like uh, about Ragozin, who's the head of the space agencies, yeah. things like, you know, seek psychological help in trying to understand uh, what is the Russian space program future, something like that. It's constant. Let's try and uh, conclude on a somewhat <laughs> funnier or more optimistic note. And uh, what is the cultural, or, or whatever, it could be sad as well, the cultural phenomenon of today's space race, how do you see it, how it's different from the heroics of the 60s? Yeah, well, I'm not sure I'm the best person to go to for, for a kind of optimistic conclusion on this, but I'll try to at least uh, say a couple of interesting kind of thoughts about the current moment, which of course we're kind of still in, so it's hard to to really see the contours of it clearly. One thing that I find surprising is that the rhetoric and the conversations are actually not new. They're really going back to conversations that were taking place in the 60s and then kind of disappeared. So Musk is talking about colonizing Mars and building a civilization, you know, on Mars, creating cities in a way, kind of continuing projects that were talked about, you know, from the early 20th century and into the 60s. So it's interesting to me that there isn't really much new. They're just kind of talking about things again in an old way. And the other thing that's interesting is that I think because the state of the Russian space program is so uninspiring, right? Let's say uninspiring. I think especially because there was and still continues to be such a deep attachment to its heroic age, that its current kind of unheroic age is all the more reason for cynicism and, and kind of self-loathing and kind of self-criticism. But I think it, it really, what it captures this is, well, two things. One, the fact that there's actually a huge Russian following for Musk and Musk's project that he's actually has a huge... Oh, yeah, that's a good you know, point. Yes, yes. He even responds in Russian, as I understand it. Yeah. Even though he's American, because he speaks with confidence about all of the heroic things that are going to happen in the near future, right? In the near to medium future. So there is no hero in Russia, but they do look 
you know, there's still an attachment to a hero figure, right, or a savior. And you see also the internal lament because you have these memes, you know, forgive us, Yuri. I don't know if you're aware of the... Okay, yes, yes, yeah. So there's this kind of rhetoric of forgive us, we had it and we lost it, right? That's the lament. So I think that now there's hope is invested in somehow, you know, Musk's remobilization of this cosmic utopianism will inspire other entities, countries, billionaires to kind of get in the race and that this might somehow dislodge some of the inertia. But like Asif, I'm completely skeptical of anything Musk is professing as imminently happening. But I'm also skeptical that this new space race is going to look heroic because the reality is this planet is surrounded by space junk. There's all sorts of obstacles and problems that we have to deal with regard to space that are not at all heroic. You know, that, that by the way, Musk is responsible for creating a lot of that junk right now because he's launching thousands of these satellites into orbit, thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And for astronomers, this is going to be a huge problem because you can't look at the stars or anything. But generally, as an environmental problem, this is going to be severe in the next few years. So, Okay, that's actually a great conclusion. I like it. Thank you so much, Victorious. Thank you so much, Asif, for taking the time. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. I wish we could take more time because it's actually really, really an interesting, important thing to think about and discuss. Thank you. This has been the Canon Institute uh, Russia File podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you. See you, Victoria. Okay. Thank you, Max. Yeah. Thank you, Asif. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Kennan Institute, on Facebook at Kennan.Institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan.